Well, this morning uh, we will be bringing to a conclusion our little short series of meditations and applications stemming from Genesis 19, God's intervention in history to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and what the principles and implications are that we can draw today, a day of great both spiritual and sexual of confusion. Though this morning our text is going to come from the same passage of Scripture that we looked at last week, and that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're looking specifically at verses 9 through 11 and 18 through 20. These are the words of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And moving to verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now by the Spirit, open your magnificent word to us. Let its meaning, its truth, its power wash over us. Transform us into the children you desire, for which you sent forth your Son and gave him for our sake. Make us strong, make us pure, make us glad, all to the glory of your name, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been making application from Genesis 19, and we've already looked at the fact that God's design for male and female, marriage, sex, and procreation, all involves gift. It's not necessary for God. It's all extravagance on His part. It's all gift to us. All of His designs in this regard reflect His love toward His relationship with the human race, which is what the church is. The bride of Christ, it is redeemed humanity. The church is what the human race was created to be, the spiritual bride of God. And all that he does through his designs for male and female, marriage, sex, and procreation, is to give us the privilege of learning to love like God loves. We've also looked at the modern contention that the Bible basically should be relegated to the side because it's culturally conditioned. That is, it's merely a reflection of culture and the felt needs of the ancient world into which the Word of God first came. Of course, the Gospel coming in the first century in the context of the Roman Empire. And we looked at that in terms of the spirituality of the empire versus the spirituality taught in the Word of God and in the Gospel. And we've looked at it in terms of the cultural sexuality accepted and taken as for granted in the Roman Empire. And we looked at the sexuality taught by the Bible. And we saw nothing could be further from the truth than this idea that the Bible is culturally conditioned. The Roman Empire embraced and celebrated 
anything goes spirituality and anything goes sexuality. The Bible as a whole, the gospel and the New Testament particularly cut directly across and completely undermined the spirituality and sexuality empire. That's what got Christians killed was precisely that the Bible and the gospel were not culturally conditioned. So today, as I mentioned, we're going to bring this little series of meditations to a conclusion. Next week will be October uh, Fest Sunday. That's kind of our kingdom celebration Sunday. And so I will be bringing a special kingdom sermon next week. And then the following week, we'll be resuming our progress uh, through the book of Genesis. So I... By bringing this to a conclusion today, I want to look at a couple of modern contentions or arguments, lies really, that have been very, very powerful in our day and have led a lot of people astray. But before I jump into those two lies, I want us to get a biblical baseline from our text in 1 Corinthians. Uh, This text here, chapter 6, remarkable text, but if I was going to boil this down to a single sentence, if I was going to put it in a nutshell, it would be this. Jesus saves real sinners, and Jesus really saves sinners. Jesus saves real sinners, and Jesus really saves sinners. Jesus does not save hypothetical sinners. He saves real people, real sinners, real lost people. Look at the list of people who were part of the Corinthian congregation in verses 9 through 11. In verse 11, he says, such were some are you. Again, he's not talking hypotheticals here. He's talking real. Who were among the Corinthian congregation? Every different kind of sexual past and sin you can imagine. Fornicators and idolaters and adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, every kind of uh, whatever the, the anything goes sexuality was at the time. Remember in chapter 5 he had to deal with a man who was in the congregation who was sleeping with his stepmother, his father's uh, current wife. You've got every kind of theft crime here, thieves, covetous, extortioners. In other words, theft by every means, whether you're talking falsehood or stealth. You have drunkards, that is, slaves to alcohol or other intoxicating substances. And finally, you have the revilers, the backstabbers the slanderers, the whisperers, the talkers, those who love to sow discord, those who love to put other people in in a bad light, those who love to stand against the life of others by stealing away their good reputation, taking away their good name. So you have the whole litany here. Now, these were the people who were sitting in the Corinthian congregation. These were the people gathering to worship God through Christ. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to meet them one day. That's who Paul is talking to. And Paul is basically taking this congregation, and the scholars think that the congregation at that particular time that Paul was writing was about a 100 people. That's an eye-opener, isn't it? 
about 100 people. And you, and you look at the vision that what, what Paul is telling him is true of them, is what Christ has done is basically saying to them that they are the leaven that are going to take this massive empire and its culture that controlled the entire Mediterranean world at that time. And Paul is saying, you are going to transform all of that. And you can imagine sitting there with about 100 people thinking, who are we? Who are we? <laughs> what are we going to transform? What are we going to change? What are we going to undermine? But Paul's implicit message is that it's not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's about Christ. It's about what he can do. But we have to walk with him. So Paul reminds them, all these different sins, such were some of you, were being the operative word. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Holy Spirit of our God. Being cleansed, being set apart, being pronounced righteous in the name of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, that's not just talk, that means something. They aren't just concepts. These things change a person. They change a person starting from within. Think about the thief on the cross. He only had a few hours to live. He's pinned to a Roman spit. What's he going to do? And yet you see the change of heart as he hung there. Previously, he had been mocking Jesus with his buddy who was also hanging there. But a change of heart took place even while he hung there. He couldn't do much. But the change was noticeable. He rebuked his friend, said, we deserve to be here. This man does not. He turns to Jesus, says, Lord, remember me when you come in in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. The change of heart shows up immediately. Now, is this man going to be perfect if he could come down from the cross and live on? Is he going to be perfect? Is he going to be immediately transformed from sinner to a non-sinner? No, he's not. But that change of heart, that faith that has been worked in him by the Holy Spirit, who has now made his body a temple, is going to continue to be the defining force in his life and step by step by step he is going to walk with the Lord and the change is going to be noticeable in 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 Paul says we all notice all all of us Christians with unveiled face beholding is in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image into the image of Christ who is the perfect image of of the Father. We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, from glory to greater glory by the Spirit of the Lord. And Paul tells us in Romans 8.29 that whom God foreknew, that's a, that's a special word that basically means those whom God set his love upon in the beginning. Those whom God set his love upon He has predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So 
Remember the verse that comes right before Romans 8.29. It is Romans 8.28, which we love to quote, that God works all things together for good to those who love God. So what does it mean for everything to work together for our good? It means everything works together in God's providence to contribute to us being conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. And this is what the Corinthians were forgetting. They were starting to just kind of lay back and rest on their status as children of God. They were starting to drift along with the culture, with the spirit of the age, and they were turning away out of the path of transformation Transformation, the path leading to what a mature, fully formed son or daughter of God looks like. Romans 12, Paul's words again. He's already told the Christians, do not be conformed to this age. Now, many of the English translations will say world, but the Greek word there is not cosmos, it's aeon which means age. Don't be conformed to this age, to the spirit of this age. Be transformed, be metamorphosized, go from a caterpillar to a butterfly. How? By the renewing renewing of your mind, also that you can prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, our modern age has some special arguments, some special lies that tend to lead people astray and out of this path today. And two lies in particular have been very, very effective, and so I want to briefly look at them this morning. You're going to recognize both of them. The first of these lies is born this way. Born this way. Now, that was the title of the smash hit by Lady Gaga, which became a modern mantra. It was repeated literally millions of times by the media, by entertainers, by politicians. And it was used specially to refer to sexual desires and romantic attractions in order to argue that sexual desire and attraction is like skin color. It is genetically determined It is morally neutral, and therefore it ought to be constitutionally protected. Now, the main supporting argument, which was cited repeatedly in favor of that mantra, was that 52% of identical twins studied were gay when their twin was gay. In other words, 52% of the identical twins studied if one of the twins was gay, then the other one was gay. And that was the main argument they kept citing again and again and again to say this is a genetic issue. It's like skin color. Now, the problem is, is that's not actually what the studies and the data and the research showed. When they talked about this 52% of what they would call concordance, that means if one twin was gay, then the other one was, that was a study conducted by doctors Bailey and Pillard in 1990. And actually, their findings only applied to 14 of 41 of the twin pairs studied. 
I'm sorry for getting into some of the technicalities here, but it's important for us to understand. So only 14 of the 41 twin pairs studied, that's not 52%, that's 34%. It turns out Bailey and Pillard were using what statisticians call proband-wise counting. Now, I don't know, I'm not a statistician, I don't know why they would use that, but what that means is that if you have a twin pair and both of them are homosexual, you count the individuals. So a twin pair where both are homosexuals, that counts as two in favor. But when you have a twin pair with z- where zero or only one is homosexual, you count the pair, not the individuals. So that would only count as one to the negative. So that's how you end up with 14 out of 41 pairs being counted as 52% instead of the actual percentage of 34. But that's a minor problem compared to the biggest problem with this study. First of all, the sample set was very small, way too small. But the biggest problem was that the twins who were recruited for this study were recruited largely by the doctors advertising in gay and lesbian publications. That is a big no-no in the statistical world because it creates what statisticians call ascertainment biased. In other words, it's not a valid study. Better studies did not support the so-called finding of Bailey and Pillard's study. In 2000, Bailey, uh, Dunn, and Martin recruited a much larger sample set from the Australian Twin Registry. So they're looking nationwide in Australia. They determined that only 11% of male pairs and 14% of female pairs were concordant. That is, if one was a homosexual, so was the only one. They concluded that that cited that so popular study of Bailey and Pillard, the results were likely inflated due to ascertainment bias. So they did not find statistically significant support for the importance of genetic factors with homosexuality. Finally, let me mention probably the biggest study and I think the most significant Doctors Bierman and Bruckner in 2002, Bierman and Bruckner of Columbia and Yale, let me say that again, Columbia and Yale, they researched a massive sampling of uh, twins and siblings, 289 pairs of identical twins, 495 pairs of fraternal twins, 1,251 pairs of full siblings, 442 pairs of non-related siblings, and they obtained all these different pairs from a U.S. nationwide representative study of 7th through 12th grade adolescents. And they didn't just check for homosexuality, in other words, that's being acted out on. They also checked and studied for same-sex romantic attraction. Their results were that only 6.7% of identical twins pairs were concordant. Only 7.2% of fraternal twin pairs were concordant, and only 5.5% of full siblings were concordant. In conclusion, they stated, clearly 
the observed concordant rates do not correspond to degrees of genetic similarity. If same-sex romantic traction has a genetic component, it is massively overwhelmed by other factors. I'll say that again. If same-sex romantic traction has a genetic component, it is massively overwhelmed by other factors. That was the conclusion. The bottom line is that the evidence did not support the constant drumbeat mantra of born this way. The idea that sexual desire and romantic attraction are genetically determined, morally neutral, and therefore ought to be constitutionally protected. So they did not have the facts that they were asserting, but it didn't matter. They just kept saying it. They just kept saying it. What they were doing is not producing facts or truth. They were catechizing the culture. And the momentum had already been created and continued to roll. And that movement rolled on to the second main modern lie that's been so effective and I wanted to mention this morning. And that is this. Trans women are women. I'm sure you've heard that mantra as well. Trans women are women. In other words, my genes are irrelevant. Now notice the difference from the first argument. The first argument, we're born this way, is I am my genes. That's all I am. I am my genes. The second argument, trans women or women, is saying my genes are irrelevant. I am my feelings and my desires. And my feelings and my desires are morally neutral. And they ought to be constitutionally protected. Now this is the argument that gave us phenomenons like Leah Thomas, the swimmer, who competed on the men's swim team at the University of Pennsylvania for several years before identifying as a woman and then competing on the women's swim team uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, uh, at where he then began to set records and win medals. And obviously, he's, the argument now is genetics are completely irrelevant because you can watch these swim meets and you can see the genetics, you can see the genes, you can see him tower over these women competitors, you can see his shoulders are twice as broad and his arms way longer, you can see genetically he is a completely different thing, but now that doesn't matter. It only matters what he feels inside and what he identifies as. Now, this is the the argument that eventually led to the Obergefell and Bostock Supreme Court rulings, where they held on the first case that homosexual marriage is a constitutional right. And then in the second case, Bostock ruled that transgender individuals are protected by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Of course, there is no question that Congress in 1964 did not have any kind of a transgender concept in mind. And it also is what has brought us to the modern phenomena of of children um, supposedly having a right to choose permanent chemical 
and physical alteration, mutilation really, maiming in many cases of their bodies through puberty blockers, sex transition surgery, including permanent disfigurement and again, as I said, maiming of their bodies. And this movement is already pushing onward to Drag Queen Story Hour. And if you read their own literatures, I'm talking about the ones who are writing in favor of the movement, and in some cases who are actually drag queens in the movement. It is very clear that this movement is about the normalization of children as sexual objects and actors, and including now the new frontier within that movement is the normalization of adult child incest pursuant to the overall movement. And we see the same kind of dynamics uh, now with the modern movement that we see in the Bible, the kind of dynamics we see Paul describing in Romans 1 as he describes the downward death spiral of fallen humanity in turning away from the living God. And we see in every case, Paul describes how fallen humanity turns further and further away from the living God and locates the things that are true of God alone to some aspect of the creation. That's what idolatry is. As man descends and becomes further and further degraded in idolatry, we see it's a spiritual sexual two-step. There's always a sexual result. There has to be, because God created human sexuality, marriage, uh, procreation, family, and so forth, to reflect the spiritual realities that are involved in God's spiritual union with the human race. As goes one, so goes the other. We were created for two kinds of monogamy, spiritually to the one true God forever, sexually to one member of the opposite sex for life. And when one monogamy goes, it will not be long before the other one goes. It's not just predictable, it's inevitable because God would have it so. It's part of the judgment. It's part of the wake-up call as to where this degradation goes. And then we see in Genesis chapter 19 and in Judges chapter 19, we see in outside of the land of Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah, we see inside the land of Israel with the town of Gabeah in Judges 19. In other words, this is not an ethnic matter. This is not a bloodline matter. This is a spiritual matter. But in both of those, we have the men of the city surrounding a house demanding that visitors be sent out for forcible homosexual relations on threat of violence. And any protest, no matter how mild, think of Lot, how mild and mousy his protest was, but any protest, no matter how mild, is regarded essentially as hostility, as an attack, as unfair denial and condemnation. In short, what we see is a pattern of not just sin, but in this particular area we see organization. Then we see normalization. Then we see celebration. Then we see civil rightsification. Then we see opponent mischaracterization and dehumanization. And finally we see open persecution.
Well, in response to these, I want to offer you biblical answers, biblical truths. And the first one is this. God's commands reach the thoughts, intentions, and desires of the heart. Inward thoughts, inward desires, inward attractions are not morally neutral. What did our Lord Jesus teach us? Mark 7, starting at verse 21. Jesus said, it is precisely from the heart that all sin starts. No one sins because they don't feel like it. Here's a newsflash. No one sins because they don't feel like it. They sin because they feel like it. That's what we all do. Jesus said, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. And then he's going to list all of these uh, uh, sins. Adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. In other words, they're already sin when they're just in the heart. That's a defilement already. When they come out and result in action, that is a further sin and a further defilement. James tells us in chapter 1 and verse 14 of his epistle exactly how sin is produced. He says, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by what? By his own desires. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, this is why Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 5:27. they said, You've heard of old that you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust, talking about desire here in the heart, to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Solomon tells us in Proverbs 6, here he's speaking to his adolescent son. In verse 25, he's telling his son, the young prince, he's saying, do not lust after the seductress's beauty. In other words, he's saying a lot of seductresses, a lot of bad women out there are going to be objectively very attractive. They're going to be beautiful. He says, do not lust after her beauty. He doesn't say she's not really beautiful. He says, do not lust. In other words, control your heart. Control your desires. Nor let her allure you with her eyelids. Your thoughts, your desires, your attractions are not morally neutral. Paul tells us in Romans 2.16 that God will judge precisely the secrets. In other words, the inner workings of the heart. The secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews 4 verse 12, it talks about the Word of God piercing into us even as far as the division of soul and spirit and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart that all people are naked and open to the eyes of Him 
to whom we must give an account. The second biblical truth I want you to remember this morning is this one. Every single one of us, even as Christians, even as mature Christians, struggles with sinful desires and impulses, stuff we don't have to think about. Sinful impulses that run deep within us. In many cases, they go back as far in our lives as we can remember. And they're extremely difficult to change. And they're different and unique for each one of us. What one of us really struggles with, another person, another Christian has no problem with. But they have some other problem. In at least one area, and and probably for most of us, more than one, sanctification is, is not a sprint. It's not even a walk. It's a belly crawl. You're on your face in the dust, and you're struggling to go inch to inch and inch. And in that area, there's a sense in which every single one of us can say, I didn't ask to be like this. I was born this way. But properly understood, biblically understood, that's not an excuse to remain as we are. That's not an argument for moral neutrality. When we say, I was born this way, we're saying the same thing that David said in Psalm 51 when he says, in sin I was conceived, I was born in iniquity. In other words, I was born a sinner. I was born with unrighteous, sinful desires, impulses, and so forth already within me. So properly understood, saying I was born this way is an admission of the depth of our need for God's transforming love or power. It's not an excuse to remain as we are. It's not an excuse to make peace with sinful desires and attraction within us. Nor is it ever an excuse to identify ourselves by them. In Romans 6 verse 4 Paul says we were buried with Christ through baptism into his death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life because we've been united together with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, therefore, we shall also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. In Romans 13, in verse 12, Paul says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness and lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Sin will desire things within us. He says, make no provision for the flesh. The third biblical truth I want to bring to your attention is the last one we will mention, and it is this. The answer is coming home to God. 
the answer for every single one of us, for every person on the face of the earth, is coming home to God through Jesus Christ. Only then do we cease to be wandering orphans, desperately trying to cobble together some sense of self-worth by constantly remaking our reality, constantly remaking who we say we are, constantly trying to come up with some method of self-help where we feel better about ourselves and better about our lives. That's what it means to be an orphan. That's what it means to be able to construct your own identity. As I pointed out last time, have you ever talked to a real orphan? You know what they want? Not to define themselves. They want to belong. They want to belong to someone. They want to belong to a family. They want to have a father and a mother and siblings. That's what they want. We're all wandering orphans apart from coming home to God. In Romans 8.15, Paul says that we in Christ have received the spirit of adoption. That's coming home. That's having an identity that comes from the Father who made you and sent His Son Jesus to redeem you and bring you back. And so we cry out, Abba, Father. And He gives us His Spirit. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Who are we? Are we our genes? Are we our feelings and desires? No. We are who God created us and redeemed us to be. We are children of God. We take our identity from Him. And if we're children of God, we're heirs of God. We inherit from God. We're joint heirs with Christ. We inherit everything Christ inherits. What does Christ inherit? Everything. Everything. Because in Christ... The Father has not only given us all that He has, He's given us Himself as well. So in Christ, we are children of God, created male or female. That is, we were created to either be God's son or God's daughter. And so we have brothers and sisters in this family, which is more glorious Only when we come home to God do we cease to be wandering orphans and become what we were created to be. Who am I? Who are you? We are children of God, created in His image, either male or female, to be His son or to be His daughter. We are fallen in Adam, separated from God and corrupted in our whole persons. But we are redeemed in Christ brought home to God, restored as His heir, and called to walk with Him. And as we walk with Him, to share in His life, to share in His character, to share in His kingdom, and to share in His glory, being conformed more and more to His image. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.